So we give thanks that we are continuing worshiping together. I invite you to go with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew as we hear the Palm Sunday story. And as we hear the word proclaimed, I invite you to maybe read along with your Bibles that you have there at home with you. Or you can pull it up on your phone, or you can just listen. Just sit and listen and let the text wash over you. As together we go to Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Ready? Here we go. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. You know, I'm assuming that all of you said that at home. Maybe you can text me, let me know. I gave you a thanks be to God. I'm, I'm affirming somebody who was Missy Abernathy put on Facebook this week that she was missing Bruce and Nancy from the uh, contemporary service because Bruce is the, the chief verbal affirmer for our church. It's not an official position. We don't vote on it at any of our church council meetings, but he is definitely the chief verbal affirmer because I always know my sermons are doing better when I can hear Bruce ever say, amen, preach on, keep going, brother. Yes, sir. And, and if he's not there, if he's sick or going on vacation, you know, whatever, I'm like, man, nobody likes my sermon. If you're falling asleep, this must not be very good. And so if you just send me a text, I'll know. I can hear your amens through the interwebs and the ways in which we are connected by technology. But we are about to be finishing up our series called Power and Passion because we're moving into Holy Week this week. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day where we begin the journey to the cross, where we come up, where we have this turn, the passion of Christ comes from this week. And we've done all these character studies about Pilate and Mrs. Pilate and Peter and Nicodemus. And we just we've enjoyed getting to, to journey through this passion narrative in a new way. But today, today's Palm Sunday. It's the day for us to, to jump back into the events that took place as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey. Or as Reverend Kathy said it a couple of years, he rode in on a monkey. She, she said that in one of her prayers, and no one's ever let her live it down, that she accidentally said that Jesus rode in on a monkey in her desk, or in her office on her desk. There's actually a stuffed monkey, and August will go in there from time to time, and she'll say, monkey, monkey, monkey. But we are, as a church, journeying in this story as Jesus is rolling in on a donkey, and the crowds of people are spreading their cloaks and cutting down branches, and everyone is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. This is the scene that sets up our Holy Week experience. And even though Easter 
And the path to Easter is going to look very different this year than it has in years past. We are still making that journey together. We still will have our Monday, Thursday worship. We will have our Good Friday Tenebrae service, and we will celebrate Easter next Sunday. And so as we make this part of the journey, as we begin today on Palm Sunday, as the Passion Story begins, we're entering to a scene where Jesus is still very much alive, and the idea of him not being alive is far from everybody's mind. If you were to interject yourself into the story 2,000 years ago, the concept of Jesus as his triumphal entry to the potential of Jesus having been killed in five days would seem just completely far-fetched. But a lot of us like to just go straight to the Easter story or the Good Friday story. We want to get to those parts of the story. But we're not there yet. Today's Palm Sunday. It's a day for us to sit and feel the tone and the tenor of what this whole experience means. So let's jump in to our sermon this morning. And we'll begin with a word of prayer as we do every week. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. When we enter this story, Jesus is sending two disciples ahead of him. He he tells them to go and get a colt and a donkey. Now, Matthew's gospel is the only one that says a colt and a donkey. The other three gospels just say a donkey. Other than Matthew's propensity to try to match up stories in the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot of reason for this, but it's also not terribly important. Don't get hung up on the details. Just imagine Jesus is riding a four-legged horse-like animal, And he is on his way into Jerusalem, into the holy city. And when he arrives, it is like when the championship team has just won the World Series and they're coming back into town for their parade. People are laying down their robes, their cloaks, like it's the the red carpet at the Oscars. They're waving palm branches like we do at the end of a wedding where we hold sparklers as the bride and the groom are running to the getaway car. I mean, there is all sorts of pomp and circumstance, and this whole scene is just dripping with fanfare and excitement. The whole reason everybody's so excited is because they think Jesus has come to set the world right. Things are not as they should be in the mind of the Hebrew people. The Israelites are so excited about this man's entry into Jerusalem because they think he is a mighty warrior. They think he has come to restore their fate. He has come to set the world right again. The new Moses, the one that the people have prophesied about, has come to deliver the Israelites. Which is why I find the text so fascinating that it ends with with this line. When he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. There's some thick dramatic irony happening in this text. We have the scene with a celebrated figure with all this pomp and circumstance, a makeshift military parade for one man taking his place in Jerusalem walking in through the gates. And the truth of the matter is, no one there really knows who this is. 
not the crowd who's never seen Jesus before, but not even his disciples really know who Jesus is. So I don't think there could be a more appropriate question that could be asked on Palm Sunday than, who is this? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus spends almost all of his ministry trying to explain who he is and what the kingdom looks like. At the beginning, when we were going through the story of Pilate, at the beginning of Lent, we had this exchange between Pilate and Jesus where where Pilate asked him if he was a king. Jesus did not deny being a king, but he tried to articulate that his kingdom was very different. It's not like one that the world has ever seen before. And so there are these people who are watching this parade who have genuinely never heard of Jesus. They don't know who he is. But there are even those zealous disciples that have given their lives who really don't know who he is either. Who Jesus is and what Jesus does is so unlike what the people want him to be or think he should be or have decided who he is in their own minds. But Jesus doesn't ever do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't do what other people say he should. He doesn't do what has been decided for him. The people want Jesus to be their knight in shining armor. They want Jesus to be like Brad Pitt and Dwayne Johnson and Mashallah Ali and John Wayne all rolled into one. They want this tough, no-nonsense hero who's going to roll in and set things straight, the tall, dark, handsome, and ready to save the people from the evil Roman Empire. That's who Jesus is supposed to be. That's what the Messiah is supposed to be. But it's like that old MTV show, Diary. Did you ever watch that one? They think they know who Jesus is, but they have no idea. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, right? There are people who have dedicated their lives to following Jesus. They spent hours upon hours, days upon days, weeks upon weeks, journeying with, living with, listening to, watching Jesus. How could they not know who he is? How could they not get it? After all that they have seen and done, I mean, they watched him feed thousands of people with just a little bit of bread and fish. They witnessed him raise people from the dead. They saw him walk on water. They watched him heal people of of being paralyzed and of leprosy. On multiple occasions, he told them the Son of Man would have to suffer and eventually would die. He told them the kingdom of God belongs to children. He said that it's like a mustard seed, that the last shall be first and the first shall be the last. He told them to love their enemies and that the most despised people groups, like the Samaritans, are actually their neighbors. He explained lots and lots of things. He did lots and lots of things. So how is it? That the people who saw all those things, who heard all those things, who witnessed all of this, still don't get it. After all the miraculous signs, after all the teaching, they still don't know who Jesus is. Why are they convinced that he should be anything other than what he says he is? Why are they still expecting the white knight? to come in and, and, and do the things just as they expect them to be done. These foolish people, they, they should have known better, right? Did you ever hear the one about the rabbi, the imam, and the Christian pastor who were all in heaven's waiting room together? It's a good one. It's a parable. And it's actually written and told by a philosopher and theologian that I really like named Peter Rollins. But a version of it goes, goes like this. 
It just so happened that an, a rabbi, an imam, and a Christian pastor, they all happened to pass away on the same day. And so they all met each other in heaven's waiting room. They're all sitting around having polite conversation about their lives, the things they've done, the things they witnessed, the things they saw, as they were all waiting to have their interview with God. Because as we all know, before your eternal fate is signed, sealed, and delivered, you all, we all have to go through this interview with God. And so after a little while, God comes out of the interview room and he calls the rabbi in for their discussion. After a little while, 30 minutes or so, the rabbi comes out with a smile on his face, but a sheepish kind of posture. And he says, I can't believe I got it all so wrong. And he gives God a hug and he walks into heaven. And then a little while later, the God comes out and he calls the imam to come in. And they have a discussion and it lasts a little bit longer. I mean, not terribly long, but about an hour goes by. The imam comes out and they, they talk and, they, and he's got a smile on his face, kind of a sheepish posture. You can tell like he's a little despondent. But he says, I cannot believe I got it all so wrong. It's like, I can't believe the things that I thought weren't quite right. And he gives God a hug and he walks into heaven. And then God calls the pastor to go in. And they go in for their interview, and it lasts a long time. Like hours and hours go by. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the door bursts open, and God comes running out saying, I can't believe I got it all so wrong. Think about it for a second if you need to. I hear Justin laughing in the background. At least I know I got somebody. I don't know if he's laughing at the joke or that I think it's funny and nobody else does. But the reason why I think that parable works it's because it helps us realize our propensity to have to always be right. That we have this insatiable need to be right all the time. That, that we like to be sure that our answer is the right answer. And that no one is going to convince us otherwise. No one's going to tell us that we're wrong for what we believe. There are beliefs. We've heard... We have a hard time realizing that maybe some of the things we've been taught, maybe some of the things we've learned, maybe some things we've decided for ourselves might not be actually the way it is. Particularly when it comes to matters of faith, I feel like this is true. I mean, we might even have a genuine encounter with God that is somehow different or somehow contradicts our previously held beliefs about God. So therefore, that encounter couldn't possibly be true because it's not how we've always been taught or what we've always known or what we've always done. That can't be real. So maybe we deny an actual encounter with the living Christ, with the Holy Spirit, because it doesn't fit into our perfectly preconceived boxes about who God is and how God's supposed to act. I think many of us Christians are much more like the Jewish people in Holy Week, that original Holy Week, than we care to admit. We all might be there waving the palm crosses on Friday, excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But then when we find out that Jesus is different, than who we think he should be? Or is different than who we thought he was? 
I bet many of us would be in that crowd on Friday shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because, I mean, let's be honest. If I were to tell you that following Jesus, as described in the Bible, could potentially affect your life in a less than favorable direction, would you be waving branches on Sunday? If following Jesus actually meant you had to live a life in which your social standing with your friends and your colleagues, your peers, actually had little to no worth? Would you be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna? If following Jesus meant you actually had to behave differently in public and in private, but that you had to live a life that models responsibility and that offers people encouragement and grace, would you be waving the palm branches still? I mean, if Jesus' influence on your life means that you might not be able to spend your money the way that you feel like you should, to purchase the things you've always dreamed about purchasing, the new car, the second house, that pair of Air Jordan 12s that were just like the ones MJ wore in the 97 flu game, right? We all know the one I'm talking about. Now, I'm not saying that if you follow Jesus, that's exactly what's going to happen, that you can't buy certain things or that you can't participate in certain things or that you can't be a part of the society. But I think sacrificing and living an alternative lifestyle are very much within the realm of possibility of things that taking seriously the following of Jesus might mean for our lives. Being a follower of Jesus is not just a resume pattern. It's not something that's supposed to just make us look good. It's not something that's supposed to actually help us in the grand scheme of our society. I mean, I know that in the South, or if you're running for president of the United States, that being a Christian is really important for your social standing, for the way that you're perceived. It's like just another feather in the cap of acceptability. But for many of us, that's the end all be all. That's where we started. We need to be a Christian so that we can get these businesses. We need to be a Christian so that we'll get into this school. We need to be a Christian. But th there's actually no discipleship. There's no lifestyle. There's no following Jesus. But to truly follow Christ, the way that the Bible describes this, the way that Jesus lives his life, the potential that that has on the way you are perceived, I mean, come on now. Following Jesus is not actually up to acceptable societal standards. Sacrificing the things that you make on behalf of others. Not participating in the things that are going to advance you in your career. Putting others first. Loving people that don't deserve to be loved. Not hating your enemy. What group in society says, yeah, that, that's all of our tenets as well? That's why being a Christian, it's not about waving palms so that we can advance our political careers. It's not about waving palms so that our status in our school looks better. It's not so that we look good in the, interview, in the eyes of interview committees 
or of boards or people that we want to include us in their organizations? Because I'd be hard-pressed to believe that when we realize that those things actually have implications, the faith journey decisions we make will have real implications on our societal lives, that we wouldn't wave palms on Sunday and shout crucify him on Friday. I mean, if we think that it's going to help us, but then find out that it could actually hurt us, it could be hard. It could jeopardize the things that we think we want. How many of us wouldn't be part of that crowd shouting Hosanna on Sunday and crucify him on Friday? But here's the thing, friends. When we do follow Jesus, these things might happen. When we sing that we want to lay everything at your feet, that we want to make room for you to do what you want to, when we sing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, then Jesus' blood and righteousness. It doesn't mean that we just get to do those things whenever it is personally advantageous to do so. Those songs, those declarations, the prayers we pray, the theology of our faith, none of those things say, whenever it fits your schedule, do those things. Whenever it works for you, do those things. I mean, the decision to follow Jesus should affect every decision that comes thereafter. It means that our lives are not actually our own. Our perception of freedom is skewed. Because think about what our communion liturgy says. We are freed from slavery to sin and death. So yes, we are freed. But we are freed to joyful obedience to Jesus Christ. We are freed for the reason that we can be a servant of somebody else. We are freed from one thing, but we have intentionally binded ourselves, bound ourselves to another thing, to Jesus. So we are not as free as we like to believe because we have been freed for joyful obedience. And that's what discipleship means. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to actually want to wave that palm branch, not just because it makes you look good or because you're part of the crowd, but it's because something that you want to live your life for, something that you would die for. Something that colors the lens for everything else that you do. But the good news is this. I'm glad to know that I've hitched my wagon to a God whose abilities and capabilities are far greater than anything I can come up with on my own. I mean, right? I'm glad I cannot convince God that God is wrong and I'm right. I look around at the craziness of our world right now, and I realize just how limited we human beings can be at times. Yes, we are created in the image of God. God has given us great gifts, but there is a limit to what we can do. The world that we have built, the society, the security, the comfort, we're seeing right now just how fragile all of that really is. How temporal things can actually be. But I place my hope in these words from 1 John. And I'm quoting from the message paraphrase version. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. 
Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with God. It just isolates you from him. The world and all it's wanting, the world and all it's wanting will fade away. But the things of God, the ways of God last for eternity. The good news is that we know, come what may, we still entrust ourselves and our lives to a kingdom reality that far surpasses anything we could ask for or imagine. Any construct of God, any false Jesus that we create is an idol compared to who God actually is and who Christ is. So we begin this Holy Week journey to the cross with this. I ask you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you think Jesus is? And when you figure that out, based on what we find in the Bible, and when you discover what the potential implications of that are for your life, because if there is one true Lord of everything, then he is Lord through and in even this moment. He is a Lord of Thursday and Friday also. And every one of these moments is an encounter with the living God. A God that we cannot choose or make up for ourselves. In the realest possible ways, when we encounter God, it will be outside of our understanding. It will create us, create within us a need to ask, who is this? But if he is the only Lord of our choosing, the real God, the one who far surpasses everything, then the possibilities of what God can do in your life and what you can do for this world on behalf of God are endless. But if Jesus to you is just who you want him to be, the one that's socially acceptable, the one that gets you in the door, if, he, if all we want is what we want, then let's just crucify him and get it over with. <laughs>